So there's a difference between fear and anxiety. Fear has a short shelf life. Fears tend to come suddenly and go almost as quickly. Fears can lay dormant until they are suddenly awakened by tax season. (laughs) Traffic tickets, a traumatic event or a test or a trying time. When I was just in England, we were having this great time of fellowship. We were on our way to the retreat when suddenly this man started honking at us, started following us back and forth. He thought we were a van of refugees because the van we were in was dirty. It had um, luggage piled up in the back. And um, uh, the woman driving um, driving the van um, was Mexican, and so was um, one of my dearest friends who was sitting in the passenger seat, and then I was in the back. He accused, uh, he got the police to follow us and pull us over. He accused us of having seven people in the van. It was just like this crazy thing. He's screaming at us. He's yelling at us. And he it's like, wait, we're on our way to a Christian retreat. And you know, the police officer has me roll down the window and he says, where are you from? California. No, I said California. And he said, and when are you going back? And I said, I'm going back Monday. I am just here to meet with a bunch of Christian women and then to leave. I do not want to live here. It's too cold. I live in Southern California where it is raining right now, but usually has sun. But it was just this crazy thing. And then, you know, our, the woman who was doing the retreat, who was driving, I could see the anxiety. It was a distraction from the retreat. And, you know, we would, we would enter into the retreat. And then she'd come to me and she said, he said he had a dash camera. She said, do you think I'm going to be in trouble? What do you think this means to the ministry? And I said, it means absolutely nothing. God's going to see you through this. But, you know, these fears come up suddenly, don't they? But they can dissipate over time. Um, As we age, a lot of our fears dissipate. I am no longer afraid of creatures living under my bed. From the time I was a little girl, I had to lift up the bed skirt and just check under the bed every night before I went to bed. You know, it was usually when my dad was praying with me and he had his eyes closed. So I would check under the bed like, okay, it's safe. And we can outgrow many of our fears. Our fears can lose their hold when they lose their cause. I can be afraid of a sound I hear at night. And it can get, you know, my adrenaline going until I realize the sound was Brian. And he's walking in the room. And instead of being a fear, he's my comfort. He's my protector. So fears can be replaced by confidence. But anxiety, on the other hand, is prolonged fear. It is the pressing fear that keeps you up at night and won't let you sleep. It's the reoccurring record that keeps playing in your head. It's the relentless scenes that pass through your mind. But every anxiety begins with a fear. And do you know that all of our fears can be traced to two categories? And one is the fear of loss. And the other is the fear of the unknown. And maybe you're saying, no, no, Cheryl, my fears don't fit in those categories. Well, let's just see as we keep going. Now, Christians are not 
to be plagued by anxiety or prolonged fear because the Bible tells us over 144 times to not be afraid. Do not be afraid or fear not. In Luke 12, Jesus identifies the cause of our anxieties and the cure. Now, as we go to Luke chapter 12, we find that the ministry of Jesus is growing. But the growth and the multitudes that are coming are trampling over each other. They're not a redeemed or a sanctified or a pleasant bunch of people. They're coming. In fact, in an earlier chapter that we studied, Jesus asked Peter to keep a boat ready for him, lest the multitude trample him press him, hurt him, because they're so self-absorbed, they're so self-centered, they're so me first, that in order to get to Jesus, they don't care who they hurt. In order to get their needs met, they'll hurt other people. So this multitude that's surrounding Jesus, they're trampling over each other. What we have right now is Jesus has rock star status. They, they love Jesus or they are coming to Jesus, not loving him, unless you consider it like an eros, what I can get out of it, a very selfish love. But they are coming to Jesus to be healed, to be touched, for the notoriety, to be able to say, I was with Jesus. Or for what they want Jesus to do for them. And Jesus takes this opportunity as the disciples are seeing this multitude and maybe feeling a little like, yeah, we're with Jesus. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. We're the disciples. Maybe this sense of self-importance or even the fact that they're in leadership to tell them, beware of hypocrisy. My dad used to say, never believe your own press. There were a lot of stories that circulated about my dad like he could fly over the roof of Calvary Chapel, which is not true. But there were a lot of stories about my dad. And I'll hear stories about my mom. I'll hear stories about my dad. And I'll just be like, never happened. It's sweet. And it's a great story. And it would make for great mythology. But that's, they were very human. Both my mom and father, very, very human. And there was a lot of grace in my home. There was a lot of laughter because we recognized our humanity. I'll never forget the time my dad, he was trying to get us to stop arguing. It was my mom, myself, and um, another sibling. We're all kind of, it was dinner time. We're all kind of like, ah. And I know my dad wanted to stop it because he wanted to eat. So he said, Lord. And he started praying, which meant we all had to stop and bow our heads. And he said, Lord, we're so good. And then he tried to fix it. Lord, uh, you're so good. And my sibling's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. We heard you. We all heard you. You said, Lord, we're so good. That's false doctrine, Dad. And, you know, I, my dad just started going, hoo, 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 hoo. You know, we were human. And, and that's why he said, don't believe your own press. Because we could get so puffed up. And then you're trying to live out an image. You're trying to live out what people think about what you are. Then what you really are. 
This is who we really are. We have failures. We have failings. We are humanity, all of us. And only Jesus should be worshiped. Only Jesus is perfect. But hypocrisy is so dangerous, not only because it's dishonest, but it creates imagery, which is idolatry. It creates images, false images, things that aren't real. It fosters dishonesty. It creates unrealistic standards that nobody can live up to. It stagnates growth because growth comes through honesty, through confession of what we're not, through admitting our deficits. That's how we grow. But if we're pretending that we're all together, we're dishonest, we're self-deceived. Hypocrisy is a reaction to the fear of man or caring what men think of us rather than what God knows about us. When you lose the fear of man, you begin to lose the possibility of anxiety. Pretense is for man because God sees everything and God will reveal everything. Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. And either that's a comfort. If you live in the light, that's a comfort to you. That's a joy. But if you're living in pretense and hypocrisy, that's a fear. That's an absolute fear. I think about Peter, and I wonder how much of this is for Peter. Like, hint, hint, Peter. Because we read in Galatians where Peter pretended to be something when he was with the Jews and he was another person when he was with the Gentiles and Paul called him out and said, Peter, what are you doing? And we're told that because of Peter's hypocrisy, even Barnabas was stumbled. And Jesus is saying, you know what? And what happened? Paul brought it to the light. He brought Peter's hypocrisy to the light. In verse 3, Jesus said, there's nothing whispered that will not be made public, especially if you have little kids. It will be made public. Braden, when he was little, five and under, had this marvelous way of telling everybody what he heard Brian and I saying about them. So he had to say really nice things about everybody because he'd say, you know what my mom said about you? And you're like, oh. and you're just pins and needles like, oh, I hope I said something nice. What did I say? He just go up to church and say, my dad was talking about you. You know what he said? You're like, seriously? One time he was walking with somebody and uh, they, they let a bad word slip out. And he looked at them and goes, I'm going to have to tell my grandpa about that. And this person said, please, please don't, don't tell your grandpa I said that. Please, please don't. And he goes, I have to. I have to tell them. He was four years old. I have to tell him. And this person said, I'll give you $10. He goes, okay. <laughs> but Jesus is warning his disciples to keep it real. Keep it authentic. 
And he strengthens the case for authenticity by identifying the fears, those things that could cause you to move into hypocrisy, the anxieties that, that might move you to this place. And he brings all those fears to the light, the greater light, the greater reality of a loving heavenly father and of a heavenly citizenship where savings accounts never dwindled, are not subject to unexpected bills, where no thieves or identity theft can steal it away, and nothing corrodes and there's no inflation. So let's talk about the source of our fears. The number one source, the fear of loss. Well, going back to verses two and three, it's the fear of the loss of our reputation. We try to cover our imperfections, our failings and faults. We try to cover our true feelings by whispering. And we don't want our true feelings to be known. And and when we're covering and pretending to be something we're not, there's always that fear, the fear of the loss of our reputation, the fear of our image, that people are going to know what we're really, really like. Then verse 4, we have the fear of the loss of life. We fear those who can kill our bodies. Isn't that true? You know, why do you get afraid at night? Because somebody might be breaking into your house and they might have a knife or they might try to take your body. Um, There's certain times when I'm driving where I'm making sure all my doors are locked because that person who's waiting to cross the street looks scary to me. They might hurt me. But the fear of the loss of life. And Jesus says, don't fear those who can take your body, but then lose all power. We fear the loss of our possessions. In verse 13, you've got a man complaining about his brother not sharing the inheritance. And this fear of loss includes the loss of inheritance, what is owed to us or entitlements, the fear of loss of property, the fear of loss of material items, but it also includes the loss of power and position. In verse 48, we see those that are holding on by intimidating or beating servants because they don't want to lose their power. I know people who rule and hold on to power by pure intimidation, by threats, by, you know, um, belittling and beating someone. I, I... I know of teachers, and I've experienced teachers who try to control the classroom by intimidation and by um, humiliation. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a principal of a school, and I said, how common is this? She said, well, we as um, administrators, we as teachers in the public school are not allowed to have punishments such as you wrote on your desk, now you must wash off your desk. We cannot by law make a child wash off a desk if he's written on it. She said, we cannot hold a child in by law at recess or take away privileges. So she said, because we've lost this type of power, a lot of teachers now try to rule the class by humiliation and intimidation. 
And the Lord says, you don't, don't do that. You are not to rule this way. But then we fear the loss of relationship. In verses 52 or 53, the division in households, wanting to keep the cost, uh, the peace at all costs, valuing relationships to men rather than relationship to God. Then there's the fear of the unknown, the fear of what we will eat. I have this weird syndrome. It's called airplane food syndrome. And Brian really is amazed at this because every time I fly, I have to fly in an airplane. Lest you think I have wings (laughs) underneath. No, I'm not angelic. But when I fly in an airplane and, you know, transatlantic flight, I have to eat every bit of food they give me. I don't know why. I don't even like half the food they give me, but I have to eat it all. I don't know if in the back of my mind, I think this might be my last meal. I'm going to make it good, but I eat everything. You know, Brian will push something over to the side of his tray because he doesn't like it. I'm like, more for me. And I, I take it and I eat it. But you know, there is you know, that, that fear of the unknown. What if I never eat again? What, what, what if, you know, my favorite restaurant closes down? What if they change the menu? And that's the fear of the unknown. I don't know what I'm going to eat. What will I wear? You've all had this. You know those occasions? Those occasions, that wedding? What will you wear to that wedding? Especially if it's a hoity-toity wedding. What will you wear? What will you wear to that dinner party? What will you wear at Christmas? What will you wear to the Friday morning women's Bible study? Or where will we go? Verses 35 through 36. Where will we go? What will we do? Verse 44. What will we do? What is waiting for us after this life? These are the unknowns that can make us afraid. Afraid that we'll never get food or we'll get a food that we don't like. Afraid that we won't have anything to wear or we'll be dressed inappropriately. Or do you ever fear being cold? You know, like when you're going to a place where it's snow, it's like, I don't know if if these clothes are adequate. I don't want to be cold. Or the fear of, I'm going to be hot, especially at this age. When those hot flashes hit, it's like, I'm going to be hot. I'm going to die of heat exposure. I'm going to combust from the inside. Or where will we go? I don't know if you're like me. I don't care just about where we'll go, but the minute we get in the car, I'm like, Brian, what route are you taking? Why are you turning down this road? This is not the route I take. I like to take this other route. And Brian goes, I just wanted to surprise you. You know, there's only two and a half miles between our house and this church, but Brian has found more ways to go and make it take longer. You know, I'm always like, what's the fastest way? What's the most efficient way? That man doesn't care about efficiency. He only cares about making sure that I know that he's in the driver's seat. And then I don't know about you. I hate boredom. I absolutely hate boredom. You know, I love to keep my hands busy. I I love busy work. You know, that's how I've made all those dishcloths. 
I want to always be doing something with my hands. I can't just sit down and watch a movie. I have to be doing something. That's why I can't go to theaters because they don't let you do anything except for eat popcorn. And I want to do something. Or have you thought, well, what am I going to look at like when you come? And what's my life in heaven going to be like? Have you ever gotten anxious about that? I have. Yeah, well, well, you know, will I still be married to Brian? Because I, I want to be, because he'll be perfected then. <laughs> These fears, if left undealt with, can actually paralyze us. And here's the truth about fear. It doesn't change anything. Fear cannot make you taller As Jesus said in verse 26, if you then are not able to do the least by worrying, by fear, by anxiety, why are you anxious for the rest? Has fear ever made anything better? Has anxiety ever made anything better? Now, fear has made me really fast and scream really loudly before. I have to say that. And and I get that fear of flight. You know, that cortisol rushing into my system with a sudden fear. And I have tons of energy. And I have to, I I seriously, I remember one time watching a movie that had so much suspense in it. My friend said, this is such a good movie. Watch it. They brought the DVD in. It was so bad that I did sit-ups. I did jumping jacks. I ran in place. And it was all that cortisol. I could fear it. I could feel it pulsing through my body and I had to do something with it. That's another reason why I can't watch action movies at the theater. You know, just seeing like, what is it? Rogue Warrior, Rogue, whatever, Rogue One, whatever that Star Wars movie that just came out. I went and saw it with my grandchildren and my grandson said, could somebody else sit by grandma? She keeps grabbing my hand. I thought that was rather cruel. But cortisol is this hormone that floods into our body when we have a sudden fear. But when it turns to anxiety, the cortisol continues to come into our body and it can overload our adrenal glands and give us adrenal breakdown. It can cause our um, immune system to be suppressed. It can cause heart problems actually eat away at our heart. It can cause insomnia and chronic fatigue, thyroid, dementia, depression. And what it does too is it inhibits the insulin production in our bodies, narrows our arteries, and it's been associated with even weight gain. When the cortisol keeps coming and keeps coming because of worry and because of anxiety. No wonder David said in Psalm 37, 8, do not fret. It only causes harm. So what is the cure for anxiety? Well, number one, it consists of being cognizant of two vital truths. Number one, you have a heavenly father. You have a father in heaven. And you need to know these 10 attributes about your status with your heavenly father. One, going back to this, he knows everything. Two and three, God sees everything. God knows 
everything. He knows everything that's ever been done, everything that's ever been said. Secondly, your heavenly father has the ultimate say over life and death. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day and she said that this anxiety that she was ridden with disappeared when she read in Psalms, he has numbered my days. And she said, I suddenly realized I'm not going to die until the Lord says I'm going to die. He's numbered my days. He knows the perfect time. And that's what Jesus said, that we're not to fear the ones who can kill the body, but the one who has the power over life and death. And then after death has the power of life to give us eternal life. This is the one when God is in that place and we realize that he has the ultimate say over how many days I live. That gives us such a sense of peace and rest. Three, your heavenly father cares about all of his creation. Verses six and seven. Five sparrows are sold for two copper coins. That sounds like quite a deal, doesn't it? Five for two. And even though man does not put a high value on these sparrows, God is always aware of them. And not one, not one can fall to the ground. But our Heavenly Father is absolutely aware of it. One day I was feeling a bit anxious. I was praying and I was walking because I found that when I get anxious, when I start to feel the fear coming on, I need to start walking and just pray it out. And I have to just kind of pound the ground with my feet. I have to feel it. And so I'll just go on a walk. And I was walking and I was uh, walking rather fast and I was pouring out my heart before God. And I, I felt the Holy Spirit say, Cheryl, look up. Just look up right now. And I looked up and I realized that the street sign where I was walking said Sparrow Road. And the Lord said, if I care about this sparrow, Cheryl, I care about everything that you're going through. And not a sparrow falls to the ground, but I know it. And it can't fall to the ground without my permission, without my allowance. Four, God values you more. You are more value than those sparrows. God's aware of the, the sparrows. Now, I think in our culture, in our time, we are always feeling devalued, always feeling devalued. The world, you know, puts values on things like age. Are you young? Mm. Yeah, what's your body look like? Mm. You got a wrinkle and a line there? I don't know if I told you this, but years ago, I went up to a makeup counter. I said, do you have anything for lines around the eyes? And you know what the girl said? Ooh. I seriously, I looked at her and I said, did you just say, ooh? (laughs) Like, ooh, because that's pretty much how she did it. Seriously, I'm grossing you out. Look at this side. If you don't have enough money, the world devalues you. If you don't have status, the world devalues you. If you don't have popularity, the world will devalue you. I remember... (laughs) 
that when I used to come up to Orange County from Vista, I'd be so intimidated by my stroller that I had for my children. My mom would go, let's go to South Coast Plaza. I'm like, mom, I can't. She's like, why? I'm like, look at my stroller. She's like, what about your stroller? I said, it's not an Africa. It's not a, you know, elite stroller. It was, you know, at the garage sale next door. It has coffee stains like everything else I own. And my mom would say, that's ridiculous. I said, no, you watch. Sure enough, you'd be at South Coast Plaza. You'd walk in with your stroller and you'd see other mothers going. Like, I'm not going to let my child ever play with that one because look at the stroller. And there was like stroller intimidation. I kid you not. Or your car, that people look at your car. Like, oh, that car. Or dirty. Or have you ever had it where the birds just like bombed your car? And you just feel like, I hope people don't think less of me because I've got these terrible spots all over my... There's nothing worse than being in the the bird bomb car. But the world devalues you. But your heavenly father puts great value on you. You are so valuable to your heavenly father that he sent his son to come and bear the burden of your sin. Deal with every obstacle that blocked your heavenly father from having a relationship with you. He continues to chasten us to get rid of anything that keeps us from being in a place where we can receive his blessings, his word, and his guidance. He values you. He values you. I I love it because the Bible says, my age before you is as nothing. And it also says, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. You know, God values you. Five, your heavenly father knows you better than you know yourself. Do you know the number of hairs on your head? Have you ever counted them? Now, sometimes we know the number of gray hairs. I I knew them until they went over 15 and then I stopped counting. And, And that was over 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. But he knows the number of hair on your head. He knows the number of eyelashes that you have. Have you ever even counted your eyelashes? I mean, there's a lot less of those than there, than there are the hairs on your head. But our Father knows us so well. In fact, Jesus said your Father knows what you have need of. We often don't even know what our needs are. We don't even know what we're feeling sometimes. You know, we think we're feeling anger and what we really are is hungry. We don't know ourselves, but our Father knows us better than we know our, knows ourselves. Number six, in verse eight, Jesus is going to publicly associate with you and claim you as his own, all because you haven't denied him. It's so simple. He will before the angels of heaven and before the Father in heaven say, this is my daughter. This is the one I love. This is Cheryl. Remember, she's the one I was always having to get out of the scrapes. This is Cheryl. 
that's security. To know that Jesus is going to publicly associate with us before the angels of heaven. Seven, you can be forgiven of anything. Verse 10, except not receiving the forgiveness. Everything can be forgiven. You see, Jesus gives us this tonic, this remedy. And you know what the remedy is for your sin? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. But unless you drink that cup, that remedy, that tonic, that antibody to sin, you are left with your sin. It's yours. And you will die of your sins. But if you receive that cup, that cup that Jesus gives us freely, that cup of his blood, which was shed for the sins of this world, you can be forgiven. There's not a sin that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of not drinking that cup. That's it. You know, if somebody gets a snake bite and they refuse to take the antivenom, they'll die. And it's not that the antivenom was not available or not given to them, but they just refused to take it because maybe they thought they had a better remedy. Years ago, there I go with years ago. It's because I'm old. But I remember I, um, I had an allergic reaction to almonds. This is when I realized I was allergic to almonds. And it was so bad that um, you couldn't see the bridge of my nose. I went straight from forehead to the tip of my nose. And my neck, um, I didn't have a neck. It went right out to my chin. And my lips could touch my nose. It was like I had to breathe out my mouth. I mean, I was just covered with these huge red blotches. And I remember going to the doctor and he gave me a shot of um, adrenaline right away. And then he gave me um, cortisone and told me I had to take it. Well, I didn't want to take the cortisone. And so for a while, the adrenaline was working and the rash was reducing. And I had the cortisone, but I didn't want to take it because I didn't like the effects. And um, there are other reasons I didn't want to take it. And I thought I was going to be okay. And then I had some natural remedies that I wanted to try first. And I was doing all right, except for that night, I went to bed and my throat started closing up. And I woke up and I couldn't breathe. And I sat up in bed and I was like, I I can't breathe. And of course, he was so comforting. Why didn't you take your medicine? You know, men are so nice. And I I took the medicine then. And I mean, it was like I almost died simply because I didn't like the medicine the doctor gave me. I wanted a different medicine to work for me, but no other medicine would work. No other medicine would get rid of the allergic reaction that I had. So God has provided the remedy for sin, the forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. But if you don't take the cup, that is the unforgivable. That is the unpardonable. Now, moving on. Reason number eight found in verse 11, the Holy Spirit will supply you with all the wisdom you need when you are called in for Jesus' sake and God will use it for glory. Even should the worst happen to you in life, the Holy Spirit will give you all the wisdom you need. 
hear it, if you're called before magistrates or synagogues are going to hurt you or kick you out, God is going to give you all the wisdom you need and bring a testimony from it. Nine, God provides for all his creation. Verse 24, Jesus said, consider, cataneo, observe and ponder the ravens. Now, these creatures, these ravens, verse 24, they don't do anything productive. They don't sow. They don't reap. They just watch soap operas. They don't have storehouses. They don't have barns. They don't have savings accounts. But God feeds them. Isn't that amazing? Those ravens, aren't they so obnoxious? I mean, you know, they're not even cute. They kind of hop around and they go, have you ever... You know, you're walking by, because ravens and crows are pretty much of the same family, and you're just walking by a tree, and you can hear them gossiping about you. I mean, seriously, one's going, ah, ah, and the other one goes, ah, ah. It's like, one is saying, I hate her, and the other one's saying, ah, I hate her too. You know, it's just like, stop that. I'm a nice person, but the, you know, the ravens don't care. Ah, ah, ah. They steal your food. You know, they'll, they'll take what is not theirs and say, hey. God's feeding me. Leave me alone. But these ravens, consider them. God values ravens. He feeds them. He takes care of them. And they're not even nice birds. But they're important to God. And the Lord said, if I'm taking care of the ravens, I'm going to take care of you. They're obnoxious. But I'm going to take care of them. And that really helps me on, because some days I have, I can be, obnoxious. I have days where I'm just like, please, everybody have a lot of grace for me. I don't know why I'm being obnoxious, but shut up because I'm being obnoxious. No, but you know, you ever have those days where I don't know why I'm treating my husband like this because he's so nice to me. He keeps coming home and eating my food. And yet, why am I treating him like this? Because he's there. And it's just this thing. And I just have to ask forgiveness. And then you start to feel condemnation. I remember the ravens. God loves the ravens. You know, we always think we have to reach this standard perfection for the Lord to be good to us, for the Lord to have compassion on us. Do you know that even on your bad days, even on your worst days, the days where you ran the red light and you cut someone off on the freeway, the Lord still loves you? Because we all make mistakes. We all do stupid things. The Lord still loves you. He loves the ravens. When you start to go under that condemnation for something that you've done, consider, cataneo, think about, observe, watch the ravens. And then the lilies, verse 30. Now, the lilies are much nicer to think about. Sorry, verse 27. I'd rather think about lilies than ravens, but I find I relate to the ravens more than I do the lilies. Those obnoxious birds that don't have savings accounts. But the lilies, Amy Carmichael had this devotion on a lily and she talked about how the lily during the winter gets pressed down by dirt and compacted dirt and it's in this bulb and it has to break through the bulb push its way up through this hardened earth. But when it finally 
comes out of the crust of the earth, it begins to unfurl these beautiful white petals. Isn't it interesting? They don't have dirt on them. You can't see any traces of mud and the leaves themselves are so fragile, even though it's been through this ordeal. But Jesus said, consider the lilies. Now, if ever there was a waste, if God was utilitarian, if he was the great comrade in the sky, which we tend to think of, you know, all oh, the Lord only cares about what I have need of. No, God goes beyond the need to blessing, blessing us with clothes, blessing us with beauty. He gives these beautiful lilies to clothe the fields, even though it's only temporal, even though the lilies, you can't think of any lasting good or effect it has on society, is simply there to beautify. We have a God that loves beauty. He brings beauty to the ashes of our life. He's not the great comrade. He's the great father, the father who likes to bless and and give to us, enrich our lives, even with beauty. So we're to observe Cataneo. We're to look at the lilies. And they remind us that our God knows what we have need of. Verse 30 and verse 31, he will provide for all of our needs because he provides for his creation. 10, Verse 32, and this is one of my favorite. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God delights to give us his kingdom. He delights to take us into the kingdom that is coming, but even now to give us foreshadowing, to give us gifts that come from the kingdom of heaven. Right now, it's his good pleasure. He delights to do this. I've been reading Jeremiah, and I was in Jeremiah 33 this morning. And God was speaking of his coming desire to bless Israel. And he says, "I, I will with passion. I was reading the NLT. Do them good. It will be my zeal and passion to do them good. It is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He delights to do that. He wants to do this. He wants to do good for us. And again, what has kept us from the good? What has kept us from the good that he wants to give us? Well, our sins Well, what did he do? He gave us Jesus to deal with that sin so he could give us the good. So that he could give us the good. Now, the second reason that we shouldn't have anxiety. Number one, we have a heavenly father and we saw 10 facts about our relationship to the heavenly father that should alleviate fear. But now, The other reason is that we have a heavenly home. Your real home is in heaven. Peter said, we're just pilgrims on this earth. We're just passing through. 
So in verse 13, a man comes to Jesus about the brother who is cheating him out of the inheritance from his father. And in verse 14, Jesus answers, who made me to be judge or arbitrator over you? You see, this man had no relationship to Jesus. He wanted Jesus. He was probably one of those trampling over others because he simply wanted Jesus to bring him a verdict that was favorable to him over his brother. But Jesus uses his time to tell a parable to illustrate the folly of amassing treasures only on earth. In verses 16 through 20, he, he speaks of a man who has a good yield from his crops. And seeing all the prosperity of his crops, he begins to make all sorts of earthly plans. What he will do with his extra money. How he will make more money. But in all of his considerations, there is not one consideration of how can I use this money for spiritual good? Or, Lord, how do you desire to use this income or this, this money? No thoughts of heaven or investing in heaven or the afterlife. He doesn't ask God for directions at all. And that night, he dies. And all those plans that he made and all that wealth and it, the crop production dies with him. It's all gone. And Jesus said, this is exactly what it's like for those who lay up treasure for themselves but are not rich towards God. It's interesting that God calls this man a fool. This is so foolish to not think about the afterlife. We, we just studied and. Um, point number one of them, that God gives us wisdom, that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom for all that we need. So we have the wisdom from the Holy Spirit, but this man is a fool because God is not in his considerations. So how do we make spiritual investments? How do we do this? We are to know that we have a spiritual or a heavenly home, but we must invest in that heavenly home. Um, last Friday night, um, we had Anthony Evans and Priscilla Shire, and it was amazing. But I loved Anthony. I loved him when he said he was ADD because I totally related immediately because I've spent my life being ADD squirrel. And... That's just kind of how I am. And when he was talking about that, and, and at one point when he was talking, he, he talked about um, going to see his father when he was, you know, having these anxieties. And of course, his father said, you know, son, feelings are not intellect. But he also said, um, son, if I would take you to a football game, and the team stayed in the huddle the whole time and never started playing the game. What would you think? And he said, you've been in the huddle too long and you need to activate your faith by playing the game. And, I, and as I was thinking about that, you see, part of activating our faith is when we begin to invest spiritually. And faith 
is what will alleviate our fears. You see, it's not enough just to know you have a heavenly father. You have to invest in his kingdom. If you don't invest in his kingdom, even though you know all those things about your heavenly father, you'll still have anxiety. You'll still have fear until you begin to activate your faith by investment. So how do we make a spiritual investment? Well, first of all, we have to do it by exercising faith. Faith is the coupon or credit card that is only good on earth. Do you realize that? Only now on earth do you have the opportunity to exercise faith. Because when you get to heaven, you won't have to believe what you can't see because you'll see what you believe. But right now, when you can't see, when there's still the unknown, because in heaven we will know even as we are known, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But right now, you have the opportunity to exercise faith to believe the promises of God even before they come to pass, to believe the word of God. And this is how you are investing in heaven. As Jesus said, right now we have the opportunity to trust our Father, our Heavenly Father, to feed and clothe and supply us with all we need. It's not that when we have the need, I mean, when we have the answer, It's the opportunity that before we have the food, before we have the clothing to say, God's going to supply. I don't know how, but God's going to supply. And then to entrust all we have, those situations to God, that God's going to come through. I've told you this before, but on my great-grandmother's gravestone, it says, Jesus never fails. On my grandmother's gravestone, it says, Jesus never fails. On my father's gravestone, it says, Jesus never fails. Why? Because Jesus never fails. I remember talking to my dad. My grandfather had had a nervous breakdown when my father was 15 years old. And he went into a catatonic state, and he couldn't move. And my grandmother had to go and get a job. And this is back in the, you know, in the 1930s, 40s, early 40s. And um, she had to go get a job. This is just at the cusp of World War II. My grandmother has to go back to work. In those days, it was not easy for a woman to find employment. And she has to make enough money to provide for her family. My father uh, got his driver's license early at 15 years old so he could have five different paper routes and deliver papers so he could help supply so that they wouldn't lose their house and they could continue to live. And when my dad was telling me this story, I said, Dad, were you ever concerned or did you ever think this is how... You know, my dad, my grandpa is going to be for the rest of his life. Did you ever think this is my new reality? And he said, no. And I said, how, how did you not like give up? And he said, because grandma kept saying, which is his mom. She kept saying, when Jesus heals grandpa, when, you know, dad is what they called him. When Jesus heals dad, we're going to do this. And when Jesus heals dad. And I said, well, how did grandpa get over this catatonic state? He said, funny enough, there had been a young Indian man uh, from India who had spoken at our church and gave the testimony of how when he gave his life to the Lord, um, his parents and everyone had rejected him. But God, had taken care of him. And he said his 
testimony was so tremendous that my father went up to him after service and said, come eat dinner at our house. And he said, Prince um, Marthunden came to our house for dinner and he ate dinner with us and he hit it off with my mom and my dad and he told us more details of his story. And then one day, Prince Marthunden was driving through Santa Ana um, a few years later and the Lord spoke to his heart and said, go to Brother Smith's house and pray for Brother Smith. So he said, Prince Marthunden came to the door and knocked on the door my grandmother, my dad's mom, answered the door and he said, Sister Smith, I'm here to pray for your husband. God has shown me that he's very sick. And my grandma led Prince Marthunden into my grandpa's room and Prince Marthunden laid his hands on my grandpa and prayed for my grandpa. And immediately my grandpa looked up and said, well, Prince Marthunden, what are you doing here? After not speaking for over a year, after being in this catatonic um, condition, immediate healing. This is the stories I used to get from my dad when I did dishes with him. That's why I love doing dishes even to this day. It reminds me. But you know, our Heavenly Father, we can trust and entrust and we invest by having faith. Next, we invest by making God our first priority. 31, by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We invest financially in heaven. Verse 33, sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches or moth destroys. We need to tithe. We need to give financially. It's so funny because that really shows where our faith is, doesn't it? Because, you know, often we're willing to give anything. I'll give my time. I'll give my energy. I'll give my, you know, anything but my money. Don't touch my money. We need to invest financially in the kingdom of heaven. We need to invest, verse 34, emotionally in the kingdom of heaven. For where your heart is, there uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we need to invest emotionally. We need to have our treasure in heaven, that our greatest possessions are in heaven. You know, I feel so blessed that my father is in heaven. And my, my aunt, E.C., my aunt Virginia, because I know I have treasure there already. I know that I have people that I know in heaven that I can't wait to see. So we need to make an emotional investment in heaven with our hearts. We need to invest our future in heaven. Verses 35 through 40, to live in a constant expectancy of the Lord's return. That this is our future, that our future is all based on the Lord's return. That everything we do is keeping the Lord's return when Jesus comes in mind. Invest our activity. Verses 41 through 48, Jesus talks about doing his will from our hearts. Doing. The doing of our lives. We invest our doing. We invest our energy. We invest our time. The doing 
We invest our hardship and trials. Uh, 49 through 53, the rejection, the fire that is being kindled, the division, that we invest that in family relationships, the ones that we've lost. We take our hardships and our trials and we let them become a heavenly investment. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We can, we can invest our hardship. Every rejection that we suffer on earth can become a weight of glory in heaven. Every broken relationship on earth can become a far greater weight of glory. Every fire that we suffer Every hardship can become a greater weight of glory. Then we invest our mind, verses 54 through 57, by exercising discernment, a willingness to truly see what God is saying and doing for us. You see, Jesus turned to this crowd and said, you can discern the weather. You know that a red sky means a storm. And you're able to discern these signs. But you don't discern the obvious signs that the Messiah is here. The signs of what Jesus was doing by healing the sick. The timing that he had come. By the word he said. By his righteous living. But you know there are also signs that God has given us. The more science discovers about the DNA the greater the sign is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've got over a billion cells in your body and they are so intricate and they are so specific to what they are supposed to do. You yourself are a sign. The eyes you use to see are a sign that you are fearfully and wonderfully created. We have the signs. We just need to believe them. Jesus then ended chapter 12 with the parable, verses 58 and 59, about going with our adversary before the judge. And the meaning of this parable is it's better to settle things with God now on earth before you stand before the great white throne of judgment. You want to make it right now. Well, there's opportunity. This is how we invest our mind. You know, life is full of scary situations. And when you begin to feel the signs of fear, whether you begin to be worried, you feel that anxiousness, you feel that adrenaline coming into your system. You're tempted to play the hypocrite to pretend to be something else than what you are. You want to hide from a situation. You're getting greedy or possessive of your possessions. You're, you're seeking to hoard or you're measuring your security or self-worth by what you possess. Or you're expecting life to be fair or everyone to be nice. It's a sign 
that you are slipping back into fear. And how do we keep those fears from turning into anxiety? One, trace your fear to their root. Is this a fear of loss? And what are you afraid you're going to lose? Is it a fear of the unknown? Then what is that unknown that you are afraid of? Then begin to apply the divine remedy. You have a heavenly father who is good and generous and giving and great and gracious. And he knows what you have need of. And then cataneo, cataneo, consider, think about, think about sparrows, think about ravens, think about lilies, and let these things comfort, inspire, and release you from your fears. And know that earth is not your home. But even this situation, this, this thing that wants to startle you into fear and anxiety, God will use to furnish and to bless your heavenly home, the place where you ultimately will be a life, a greater life, a greater reality, a, a reality that you will feel more than life on earth. Let these, these considerations fill your mind and heart and you will see anxiety diminish, fear flee as you bring them into the light of the presence of God. And with this music, we will end. <laughs> Let's go ahead and stand up. Lord, these are your precious daughters. Oh, Lord, let them know that they are your daughters. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with this sense that they have a heavenly father. Lord, I pray when they begin to be anxious, Lord, send a sparrow or a sparrow straight. Bring a raven across their path or show them a lily or a poppy so clothing the field. Lord, let them know that you love them. Remind them of it took you seven, six days to make earth and all we see, but heaven you've spent an eternity on, and that is where our treasure cannot be touched, but continues to grow and to amass because of your good pleasure to bless and to take care of us. Lord, comfort us with the joy and the realization and the wonder and glory that we have a heavenly father that loves us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.